making wise decisions. Uh, there are a lot of topics that are important, but I think in the Bible, the idea of wisdom is something that is given by God. Uh, acquired wisdom is not the same as a word of wisdom. I guess you could be a fool, but be used in the gift of the word of wisdom. A word of wisdom is a piece of wisdom that God gives generally to solve a problem that could not be solved any other way. But acquired wisdom comes from searching, mining it out, digging deep, asking God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Wisdom that is acquired takes hard work. And life is probably summed up as one decision after another, and then you die. And then beyond death, we know, is the judgment and eternity. So making wise decisions every day is extremely important. Some decisions that you make may be inconsequential, such as, you know, when you chose what you wore to church tonight, the color probably didn't matter, except sometimes we think there's some spiritual synergy if we're all wearing navy blue or gray, you know. All the ministers, we think God did that, but probably not. But that was probably a decision that didn't matter very much. And uh, where you chose to eat today and what you chose to eat today might have seemed like a very minor decision. However, over a period of time, you know, what you eat does affect you. And my dad would say, you know, you are what you eat as a rule of thumb. The more you eat, the more you become. So what you eat is not really a minor decision, right? It's a major decision that affects our physical health. And let me just throw this out while I'm there. I know some people say, you know, well, when my number comes up, when God's ready for me, He'll come get me, it doesn't matter. And that becomes an excuse to live a life that is reckless in terms of the priorities of this body being the temple of the Holy Ghost that you have of God. Amen? So your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and you are a steward of your body. We talked about this subject a few years ago, maybe in Ministerial Advance 301, a couple Wednesday nights, Brother David Turner shared this quote uh, with us, that bad decisions make good stories. Some people are determined to make the wrong decision. You know, I like to say they go to the school of hard knocks, where the school colors are black and blue. And they kind of pride themselves on, you know, doing it the hard way, doing it my way, and getting beat up all along the way. Well, I believe that a better way is the way of obedience and wisdom and aligning yourself to the Word of God. We know that there are trials in life and God tests us and none of us are above that. But the values you embrace, the friends you choose, the habits you form, the vocation you select, the spouse you marry, where you choose to live and worship, all of those things and many more have tremendous weight of consequences in your life. Now, you can choose just about anything you want from life. You can choose this or that. But what you do not get to choose is the consequences of your decisions. The consequences are kind of predetermined by your choices. 
Now, the grace of God can step in and intervene, but I have observed biblically and practically that there is a law of sowing and reaping. And whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. You always reap what you sow in kind, but you always reap more than what you sow in dimension, right? One seed produces a crop. So you can choose to do whatever you want in your life, I guess, but you cannot choose what will happen after that decision. There are consequences that are set in motion. So it's important to choose well, amen? Not to be locked into the law of reaping. Some people sow wild oats and then they pray for a crop failure. They don't want that crop to come up. You know, in a church the size of ours, people watching online and summer vacations, we have a lot of folks at senior camp tonight, which is going great, by the way, and a lot of our senior high students are there and very excited about that. But with all of that, on any given day in the life of our church, someone could be making a life-altering decision. Many years ago, I was traveling for the General Youth Division, and I was passing through the Toronto, uh, Canada airport, Ontario, Canada. And I saw a gentleman sitting over there, and he was covered. His head and neck was covered in tattoos. Now, it seems like not as many people were tatted like that back then. That's been probably 25 years ago. And there he was sitting there. He wasn't bothering anybody. And I was just waiting on my flight. But I just, I just had a thought that I filed away. I thought, what if tomorrow that man wakes up and he decides that he does not want to be the tattoo man anymore? He has a serious hurdle to face. Because to remove that many tattoos would be very, very difficult. Now you could choose to eat an extra piece of cheesecake and you could probably work that off in a couple of days. But you can make choices in your life that are not easily reversed, that have life-altering consequences. So it is important that you realize you should not make a decision in a vacuum, in a silo, in the context of the here and now, but you make decisions in the context of life, that life is a hallway, a path that you walk, and every decision you make is shaping your future, so you need to decide very, very well, amen, so I have 10 points, I plan to do about 5 tonight on making wise decisions, life B.C. Forbes said, is just an endless chain of judgments. The more imperfect our judgment or our decision, the less perfect our success. Albert Camus said that life is the sum of your choices. And if you think about that, there is a lot of truth in that. Recently I was talking to some students at youth camp last week, teaching last Thursday on the will of God to junior high students, you know, middle school students. Tomorrow, Lord willing, I'll be teaching on the will of God to senior high students. 
And it's very important. And I told them, you may think that every decision is just kind of isolated, but it is not that way. The, the decision that you make in school, I know we're in the middle of summer, but the decisions you make every day in school to sleep or study, to pay attention or to let your mind drift, you know, the, I like to say you have to pay attention. It costs something to pay attention. And as a teenager, I made a conscious decision to pay attention in church and to take notes and to try to remember what I heard preached and to not be a forgetful hearer. I wasn't thinking at that time about being a preacher, but I just made up my mind to pay attention, to not let my mind roam wherever it wanted to go, but to wrestle my attention span down and focus it on what was going on at the time. Life is the sum of all your decisions. So the first idea about making wise decisions is that principles must underlie decisions. You don't make decisions on emotions. You make decisions based on principles. You don't make decisions based on circumstances or peer pressure. You make good decisions based on principles. And we know that the Bible is a book of principles. The Bible is not a rule book. It is a road map. And when God made man, he made kind of a study guide. He made, he made a, a guide to go with us, just like an owner's manual for your car. So the Bible is like an owner's manual for life to guide you in making right decisions. It is full of principles that will steer you in the right direction. Now, under the idea of principles, I want to give you the cornerstone principle, Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste or shall not be ashamed, not confounded, not tripped up. That's the idea And this same scripture is quoted elsewhere. The Lord is the cornerstone of our life. In the book of Isaiah 28, the context of this passage is that a group of people of Israel said to God, we are not going to live by your principles anymore. We've struck a bargain to cheat death. We made a deal to dodge the grave. The coming destruction will not touch us. We've built a strong refuge of lies, they said, and deception. And therefore the Lord looks down at them and said, I am placing a cornerstone that is firm and tested pressure and you will be judged by that cornerstone. And judgment is coming and all of your deals with death and all of your philosophy cannot avert it. It will happen. The Apostle Paul quoted this verse, a phrase of it to say, that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And the building of the church is fitly framed together based or referencing back to the cornerstone. Now, in Bible times and even now, but when those stone buildings were built, the very first stone that was laid was called the cornerstone. That makes sense, right? Now, in modern times... 
The cornerstone may be more ceremonial. They may put a time capsule in there. But in those days of construction with large stones, that cornerstone was laid, set, and every other stone that was laid was referenced back to the cornerstone. So when you laid the second stone on the first level, you made sure that it lined up to the cornerstone and so on down that line. When you went to the second row and cornered the building, every stone referenced back to the cornerstone. And I want to give you this important piece of information for making wise decisions. Every time you make a decision, make sure you reference back to the Bible, to Jesus Christ, to make sure that that decision, that value, lines up to Jesus Christ. If it does not, your building, the building of your life, will not stand. Now, some people want Jesus in their life, but they don't want Him to be the cornerstone. They don't want Him to be the head of the corner. In my assessment of our society and probably the generation that is just reaching adulthood, but we are all affected by it. Most people are their own cornerstone. A preacher may have a voice in their life. The Bible may have a voice in their life. But it is just a voice in their life. But they are the final voice in their life. I would like to help you tonight rearrange your life and put Jesus as the cornerstone and let Him be in charge of who you are and how you think and every decision. Amen? Now, here's what I know about Jesus. When you say, I'm going to be the cornerstone, the final vote as to how my life goes. The Bible is not the final authority in my life. I am. So, But I want Jesus. I'm just going to move him down one, one stone. He's second or third in my life. Well, immediately you have idolatry where you are your own God. And now I've learned that when you try to make Jesus second or third or any other place than first, He will make you more miserable than anything else in your life. He will always, it will just never feel right. You know, people that struggle serving God and I'm not saying where they have trouble. All of us have trouble. But in the, in the idea of serving God, nothing ever works out for them. You can almost always take it back to lordship. That Jesus Christ is not the Lord of their life. They're picking and choosing what they want to believe and how they want to live. And Jesus is there, but he's not the head of the corner. You cannot possibly make wise decisions when Jesus is the second consideration in your life. Jesus and His Word has to be the first priority because that's the way life is designed. He is the head of the corner. Anywhere else He makes you miserable. But when you put Him first, He brings order in your life. Amen. Now, you know, some people look at life and God and the Bible as if it's all about heaven or hell. I would hate to think that I lived in hell here only to go to hell there in eternity. 
And if you live in, in violation to the word of God, you're going to find that life is hard. The Bible said that the way of the transgressor is hard. Jeremiah said your own backslidings are going to reprove you. So you are constantly, when you don't put Jesus Christ first in your life, you're always kind of going against the nature of God in your life and how He made you. Amen. Jesus said that you don't put a new patch on an old garment. Now, you know, if you had material that was not pre-shrunk and that you had an old garment that you had worn a hundred times back in Bible days and you had taken it down to the riverside and washed it out really good and hung it out in the sun and it had shrunk again and again and again and its shrinking days are over. But you got a big tear there so you go and get a patch and sew a new patch on an old garment. Jesus is giving us an analogy to trying to patch up your old sinful nature. Jesus said if you put a new patch on an old garment, it's going to make the tear worse. Now why is that? Because that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to rip that old garment. But the point is this, and he also gave us the illustration that you don't put new wine in an old hardened vessel because as it ferments, it will expand and explode that old brittle bottle. Same idea. But here's what people try to do. I'm going to put a patch of Jesus here and a patch of church there, but I'm not going to change my fundamental nature. And I can tell you that Jesus will make the tear worse in your life. He will make you more miserable than comfortable if you put Him anywhere but first. Amen. Everybody please say principles. So do your values line up to this cornerstone of Jesus Christ in His Word? What about your friends? How about your activities? Your dress and behaviors? Some people think that's unimportant. It is still important in 2015. It's very important at Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. It's important to God. It's important to His Word that we're modest and we have moderation and that we are separate from the world, and that our styles and our attire are gender appropriate, that we don't comply with, we don't give in to the gender-bending spirit of our day. Amen. So don't make life-altering decisions without the cornerstones. No wonder so many lives are in chaos. So many lives are like a building leaning over because people have made decisions... They built their life just kind of helter-skelter by emotions, right? They got the wrong counsel. And so their life is so messed up that it doesn't have structural integrity any longer. That's because there is no cornerstone in their life. Now, here's some things that you need to keep in mind about principles. That the Bible, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Amen? Anybody believe the Bible is the Word of God? A good hearty amen would be great right there. Amen. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Every word is God-breathed. 
Amen. 1,500 years, 40 human writers, but one author, God Himself, that this word is God-breathed and not one jot or tittle. The smile, smallest Hebrew punctuation marks will pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. So, because the Bible is the word of God, I've decided to make it the final authority in my life. It has veto power over every emotion and feeling over anything anybody else would ever say. Amen? It is a more sure word of prophecy than dreams or visions or gifts of the Spirit. We measure everything back to the Bible. Amen? And a conviction is determining that I will follow the word of God whatever the cost. And I will take the principles of the Bible and apply them to my life personally. And I will not ignore the cornerstone of biblical principles in my life. Amen? It's very, very important. Everybody please say principles. So, if I'm going to make wise decisions, I have to make sure I have a wise basis. Have you ever gotten bad information? You're making a decision... And you were misinformed. And when you made the decision, you made the decision on false advertisement, on something that was not true, and you regretted it because you trusted what you were told or what you heard. All of us who have lived any length of time have been ripped off, bought bad products, amen, and, and just realized later that that was a very bad decision. Amen. This past week, I uh, went to a home improvement store and bought a do-it-yourself, put-it-together plastic shelf. I looked at the one in the store, and I thought, that'll be good. My wife will like it. It'll be in the garage. We'll put stuff that needs to be stored there. You know, the longer you live, the more junk you accumulate. So uh, got home and spent an hour putting it together. I am not like Brother Bob the Handyman that could do anything. Everything I do is backwards twice, you know. But finally, I actually did pretty good. I was pretty proud of myself. And after I finished, it kind of was teetering, not very stable, and it fell over just in our kitchen against a chair, and a hinge broke. When I took it back to Home Depot the next day, I loaded it in my truck that night very carefully. I told them what happened, and I said, basically, I just want to tell you that this is a piece of junk. She typed it up and she told me it was a, she described it another way. And I said, I don't say that word. If you would please change it back to a piece of junk. You've got to, you have to have something to work with to build a quality life. And if you're working with junky principles... You're working with pop psychology. You're trying to build your life with philosophy. It will not work. You have to build with principles. And the only good thing that came out of that experience was that illustration. Unplanned, not in my notes, but I feel better. This is kind of preaching therapy right now. My wife will tell you that to me an hour is extremely valuable. The second point 
And by the way, this is not the list, as if this is all there ever was to making wise decisions. And I'm not the kind of person that usually likes seven of these and ten of those and 25 ways to have a good life. You know, I believe in living by Bible principles, but these are just insights. Secondly, when you're making a decision, you need to ask yourself, what is the purpose of my life? Because I want to know if this decision, how does this decision fit into God's plan for my life? Is this a detour from my purpose or does it fit, does it harmonize with my purpose in life? We learned several years ago, and the book The Purpose Driven Life is a very good book by Rick Warren, that we were planned for God's pleasure So we should live to worship Him. We were formed for family, for God's family. And we should be a part of the fellowship of the church. We were created to become like Jesus Christ. To be conformed into His image, right? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. We were shaped to serve God with different talents and abilities. Now when I was a a young teenager... And even a senior high teenager, my high school years, I was somewhat clueless about God's plan for my life. So it's very difficult to make life decisions when you don't know your life purpose. It would have helped me to have heard this sermon that while I did not know my specific purpose, I should have known my general purpose. That God had given me some abilities and talents and I needed to further them for His glory. Right? So I believe everyone is made for a mission. God has given us a unique shape for ministry. And your life purpose will help you determine if this decision is right for you. Before you go try on a decision, you know, like you went to the store and you tried on a garment before you purchased it. Don't try on that decision in real life. Try on that decision in your thinking process and your prayer process. And when it is a really big decision, try it on. Imagine how that decision will affect your purpose in life. How does this decision fit with God's plan for my life? When I realized that God was separating me for some purpose, I was still not sure... There were some convictions that God uh, put in my spirit. There were some decisions that I made. There were some things I choose to not do anymore. Those were not sinful things. They're, of course, always sinful things we choose to not do. But I felt like I should consecrate my life to the Lord. They were not sinful, but for me, they were not expedient. Maybe others could do that, but not me. I could see that God was separating My life, so it did not fit my life purpose. I went to Bible college, graduated, was working at a church. We didn't really make a lot of money and uh, worked very hard. And there was a man who was a minister who is also a successful businessman. And he wanted to open an outlet of his business in Jackson, Mississippi. He knew I had some administrative abilities, so he called me. And he asked me if I would be interested in just kind of part-time overseeing his business and just running it in a part-time basis. He offered me what I thought was quite a bit of money for back in the 1980s. 
And so I prayed about it. And I realized in my prayer that for me, for Daryl Johns, that that is not my direction in life. I know that there are ministers who are very good in business, but for me, my business is the church. That's what I do. I'm involved in other parts of the work of God other than Atlanta West, but everything that I'm supposed to do is for ministry. That's not for everybody, but that's for me. So my purpose helped me say no to a good opportunity that didn't fit me. It wasn't right for me. Why? Why in the world would you want to spend your life with detours, distractions, and defeats in life? All because you continue going off in random directions without any kind of an understanding. How does this decision to take this course or go to this college, accept this job, befriend this person, take in this hobby, how does this fit in my life purpose? If you have the decision made to put God first in your life and He is the cornerstone and then you know your purpose, you will know that a lot of things are bad decisions and you don't want to be a part of them. Because my purpose is, first of all, to be a Christian... There are some people that I cannot get in an alliance with. I'm not unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's why, you know, I didn't marry an unbeliever. I married a believer. I also married someone whose purpose was aligned to my purpose. And you may remember me telling the story that, you know, we were in a missions conference or had a missionary at Bible college and in chapel service. I've always had a heart for missions And the missionary kind of indicated that I might have a call to missions. And I was wide open to that. And uh, my wife and I, were we engaged at that point? Do you remember? We were engaged. So at lunch that day, I said, "Uh, I just wanted to know, how would you feel about being married to a missionary? And the response was, I need to pray about it. Well, that's a good response. Because you better know before you get into that decision... If you're willing to pay that price or be involved in that way. So the equal yoke is not just that you're yoked. Now a yoke is a contract. It's a binding agreement. It's not just a casual friendship. And the Bible teaches that people that we get in a yoke with, in a binding agreement, should be a believer. They should be on the same page with us. Two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. So if you're looking for a life partner... You should look for that person where you expect to spend some of your time. Like for me, it was in the prayer room that I kept seeing this freshman Bible college student over and over and over. And I thought, that's the kind of girl that would make a good preacher's wife. That was my purpose. So you should not, the old timers would say, you shouldn't hitch your wagon to somebody who's going off in the wrong direction. Amen? You shouldn't get in some type of a binding contract with a person who does not have your same purpose in life. If you want to make a wise decision, make sure you know your purpose in life. Amen? Third point. We're only doing five tonight so you can relax. There is always the outside possibility that we get out early tonight, but... Usually that doesn't happen. 
Everybody please say priorities. I've got principles that are most important. I know my purpose in life. And because I have a purpose in life, that purpose gives me a sense of priority. Of what is most important in my life. The first commandment tells us in Exodus 20 and 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we would say that that scripture teaches the priority of God. Do you believe that? Just say kind of amen. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the Lord says. So nothing comes before God. He is my highest priority. The word priority comes from this idea of being prior or precedence, either in time or in order or in, or in importance. So it's real simple. My priorities are based on things that are most important, greater or lesser. Some of you know that for like now maybe going on 38 years, I've used a physical day timer. I have a computer and I have a smartphone and I use all those kinds of things. But I love just to jot. And I jot sermon ideas and while I'm in church, things that we need to do to improve our church. And I learned back then years ago, just simply say A, B, C or A, 1, 2, 3, just to prioritize your life. One day I was having to run some errands in Jackson, Mississippi, and I knew the places I need to go. Now, this is embarrassing to say. And I went here, and then I went there, and I went over there. And after like about an hour of, you know, backtracking, I just kind of fussed at myself and said, why did you not write down where you needed to go and where you needed to go first and second and third? You know, what we procrastinate, we usually abandon. So a lot of people put off the hard work till last and they never get around to it, right? So that day, I would have been a lot better off to just prioritize what I, need to do, what I needed to do and where I needed to go. And if you know your principles and if you know your purpose, then your priorities come a lot easier in your life. All you're doing is setting one thing above another. This is more important than that. And then this is more important than that. And I am trying to make sure, this is what we should all be doing, that I'm living my life by priorities, not by pressures. I've learned that if you don't have a plan, somebody else does for you. Right? Some people are always reacting to whatever is going on in their life. Now, some people have a job. That's what you do. My brother is a fire chief. And uh, all the years that David was a fireman, he just retired. But, uh, you know, it all depends on when that alarm goes off. When that alarm goes off, you jump up, throw on your gear, and you go out whatever time it is on your 24-hour shift. That's what you do for a living. But what if my brother would have sat around for 25 years and just been an entry-level fireman, just responding to alarms. But David had a bigger, bigger goals than that. So he studied, and he took classes, and he became a lieutenant. Then he became a captain, and then he became a chief. 
and his pay is probably five times, ten times more than it was when he started because he didn't just respond to a bell that went off. He wasn't reacting to the alarms of life. He had a purpose and he had priorities and those priorities determine how he spent his time. Everybody please say priorities. Amen. Isaac uh, in the Bible was in a time of famine. And the thing that seemed natural to do in a famine was go down to Egypt because that is what his father Abraham had done. And later his son Jacob in a famine would leave the land of Canaan and go down to Egypt where they would be sustained. But Isaac had a priority of seeking the Lord. And the Lord told Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. I will bless you right here. Well, but we're in a famine. And it looks like there's food in Egypt. And when my dad went through a hard time, that's what he did. So maybe I should just do what my dad did. But there was a spirit, there was a word from God that helped him not do what just seemed to be the pressured thing to do. He had a priority of hearing from the Lord. Amen. In the book of Ruth, we read about the story of Ruth, but Elimelech, Naomi made a bad decision based on wrong priorities. There was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. They left and went to Moab. There was no indication that God told them to do that. While they were there, the daughters married pagan sons. The husband died. The two dies. The two sons die. And finally, Naomi comes back home with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. I said Ruth earlier, but it's the book of Ruth. Naomi and Elimelech. Naomi comes back and she says this. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me home again empty. She wanted, she wanted her friends to call her Mara or bitterness. Now, when Naomi and Elimelech left Bethlehem, Judah to go to Moab, there was a famine. But at that time, they felt like they were empty and they had to go somewhere else. They were driven to leave Bethlehem, Judah by the pressure of the famine. But when she comes back, she says, we went out full. So if you don't live your life by priorities, you're going to find yourself reacting to circumstances instead of principles and your purpose and by your priorities Priorities always trump pressure. Fourth principle is prayer. Let me back up to priorities just a moment. If your priorities are right, I wanted to apply Isaac and Elimelech's story. If your priorities are right, and God is first, and you make a wise decision, God can bless you by sending you down to Egypt, or He can bless you by staying in the land of Canaan in a famine. He can bless you if you will follow the guidance of the Holy Ghost. But if you place, for example, finances over faith, you may take a job to make more money but the hours keep you out of church. The hours rob you of family time. 
the job is the kind of job that you're really not cut out for. doesn't fit your purpose in life. Amen. I've known people that because of a job, they moved away from a good church. I'm not just talking about Atlanta West. Nobody in this church that I know of is making a decision about a job. This is in my notes because I want to teach a principle to help you in the future. Why would you move away from a place where there was a good church to a place where there was no church to try to raise your family unless God was sending you there to start a church? That happens. But that's not usually the reason people do things like that. But you see, if you don't understand principles and your purpose and priorities, you're going to always be ricocheting around. You're going to be just bouncing around not being guided by solid principles, and you're not going to make wise decisions. Fourth principle, prayer. This is a good thing to include, right? If you have prayer without principles, you can make bad decisions. Because you can pray amiss, faultily, James says to consume it upon your own lust. In other words, that's what you want to do. And you're just praying to say you prayed, but you really weren't listening. You're just telling God. Amen. I just want to say this for what it's worth. If you really want somebody to give you advice, and I'll talk about counsel later, you know. But if you really want somebody to give you honest advice, don't go say, I've decided to do such and such. What do you think about it? God spoke to me to move to Antarctica and herd penguins. What do you think about that? Well, who am I to stand in God's way? When you're praying about decisions, the first prayer you should pray is the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will. But thine, yours be done. Last night I spoke to the wonderful impact group. We had a tremendous time on the brokenness. The blessed are the broken. And this is the prayer of brokenness where we come to God and we say, Lord, not my will. I usually have an idea of what I want to do. I think I know what is right. But I realize that I have to wrestle my flesh down into the sovereignty of God in my life and say, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Matthew 26, 39, that's the prayer. Now go with me to James chapter 4. We'll take just a moment to look at this scripture. Here's prayer, but here's how prayer plays its role. James says, go to now. I like the way he says that. It's kind of like, hang on, guys. You that say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, what verse 13 is, is a statement of presumption. I am going to do this. I'm going to that city. I'm going to live there a year. I'm going to buy and sell and I'm going to make a bunch of money. James says, 
Verse 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and vanisheth away. For that, because your life is a vapor, you should stop and you should say, if the Lord will. What's the prayer? The prayer is, God, I'm trying to do the best thing. And I believe that you'll guide me. But I'm just here to tell you, God, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. Amen? I'll end with this in a minute. But trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. There is a way. That seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It is not in man to direct his own steps. The Bible says that no matter how brilliant you may be, you cannot direct your own steps. And guess what? Why would you want to? If you knew that you had the winning edge of God on your side. He knows you. He made you. He knows the end from the beginning. Amen? Why would you want to be so foolish as to presume upon the future when God could guide you into His future, which is always acted out of His sovereignty, His wisdom, and His love for you? Amen? So if the Lord will. Another verse in James, James chapter 1. So we're praying, not my will, but yours be done. We're praying, Lord, if, you, if it's your will, open these doors. If it's your will. But God, I'm not willing to take a step if it's not your will. <clears throat> Let me just pause there. I'm going to talk about praying for wisdom. But, you know, 20 years ago, August 31st, uh, this church elected me to serve as pastor. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. Now, I know that 20 years ago, probably the people who elected us were thinking, man, this guy probably is just can't wait to, for us to <clears throat> decide what we're going to do with his life. But you may not believe it, but we weren't going to just come to Atlanta if it was not the will of God. I can guarantee you that my life and family and ministry was too important just to move to a city and take a church, you know, if they would elect you just because it seemed to be the right thing. But we had had supernatural confirmations in our lives. I was here preaching the Atlanta Youth Convention the December before. And uh, someone picked us up from the airport and driving us to the hotel. And on the way they were telling us that they had just been here about six months pastoring in the city. We got to the hotel room and my wife said, Daryl, you're not going to believe what happened to me when they were telling me that they had come to Atlanta. She said, I had this sensation like I was carrying a baby and the baby just kind of flipped inside of me. She said, I don't know what it means, but I feel like we're supposed to be in Atlanta. That's December of 1994, not 1995. So, you know, we filed that away. How do we know? We just trust God that He's guiding us and leading us. And we'll know what to do, but we'll just check that off. Is that something? We were praying and fasting and Nobody, we weren't on anybody's radar at this church for several weeks. And then through a turn of events, I was preaching a youth camp in, uh, in Nebraska. It was 107 degrees there that year. It was so hot in Nebraska. And they got a phone call 
that there was some interest from this church. But we prayed about that because why in the world would we want to do something that was not the will of God? The Lord supernaturally confirmed to us that this was His will. Now I know the Lord had to supernaturally confirm. He works on both ends of the line to, to tell enough people in this church to say, vote for them to come. And if you were here, you know it was not a really strong vote. Uh, when I was elected to be pastor here, the church was dividing their opinion about who should be the pastor. And the first Sunday I said, I realized that a lot of you did not vote for us. And, but here we are. And I just ask that you give me an opportunity to become your pastor. But the day before the vote, I believe, or maybe the day of, I think it was the day before, was at World Evangelism Center, and I went into Brother T.M. Jackson's office. I just went by there, and he said, Hey, Brother Johns, how's it looking you know, for Atlanta? I said, Brother Jackson, I have no idea what's going to happen in the election. I think it was tomorrow, you know, the next day. And I said, So we're just praying. He said, Let me tell you something. Let me share something with you. Brother George Glass told me one time, you know, if you are being considered for a church, and if the church bylaws allow you to be elected with a 51% vote, and you feel it is the will of God that you should go there, then even if the vote is 51%, you go. Because he said, those people do not even know you. When they elect you to be their pastor, you're not their pastor. You just have a chance to become their pastor. So if a church is divided and people are unsure, you just go. The day before the election. When the election happened, I was told, you know, that's not a very strong vote. And I said, I know that's not a very strong vote, but we believe it is the will of God and we will be there Sunday. You know, I thank God that it wasn't just left up to the will of a vote, but God was working here and God was working in us. We preached Thursday, Friday. We had a picnic on Saturday. And on Sunday afternoon, I taught the Sunday school lesson. And uh, there was that break, 15-minute break, and came in for church. And when I walked in the back door, we had a back door then. When I walked in the back door for the main service, it was like the Holy Ghost came over me and said, you are the pastor of this church. I'm like, okay, they haven't voted yet. But in my spirit, I knew that this was the will of God. So if you would have said no... That would have been on you as a body of believers 20 years ago. But I'm saying that to say, no matter how enticing something seems to be from the outside, don't ever let circumstances make you run from or run to something because it looks good or bad. But say, Lord, I want your will more than anything in my life. I want the will of God. Amen. Well, I've never told that here in 20 years, but there you go. When you're praying, pray for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy. Fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, we're talking about making wise decisions. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men generously, liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. 
For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Not a tidal wave, but a wind-tossed wave. And the Greek there is very vivid. The word picture of, of the foam spraying everywhere. That's what happens to that person's life. And let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now here's the point why I read all of that. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. But if God gives you wisdom, don't be in the position where you're not, you're not sure what you're going to do about the wise decision. If you're a double-minded person and unstable in all your ways, don't think you're going to receive anything from the Lord. He's not giving wisdom to you until you're committed to do it His way. Pray for wisdom. He wants you to have it. But He wants you to have it with a commitment to doing things His way. When you pray, pray for patience because that's also a big component of the will of God. I've noticed that when God unfolds His will, you do need to pray a lot because usually there is like this birth of a vision. And I could teach for a whole message on this. There's this, this thing that God births in you that you say, ah, oh, this is the will of God. Like God telling Abraham, I will give you a son. And then inevitably that vision just dies. It becomes impossible. For Abraham, Sarah is barren. Abraham becomes too old. Abraham tries a couple plan B and C to try to make the will of God happen his way, but it doesn't work out. And finally, when it becomes humanly impossible that Abraham and Sarah cannot produce a child biologically, that God says, perfect timing. You're dead to your ego. You're dead to your own ability. You will never take glory for this. Bam, Sarah's going to have a baby 90 years old. Abraham's going to be 100 and his name Isaac's going to be in laughter. Ha, 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 are you serious? Yep, that old couple had a kid. So pray for patience. Because if you're going to be in this ride with God, He's going to work out His character in you. Like Joseph, until His word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Last point for tonight. Musicians can come. Peace of God. Peace of God. This is a really big point, okay? So try not to be distracted. The peace of God is not an emotion. Now, peace with God means a right standing with God. In other words, you were at war with Him before you were saved. But the blood of Jesus Christ made peace, right? So now you have atonement or atonement with Him. So that's peace. But when you're making a decision, you need God to make a ruling in your heart. I want to give you a verse that is a very powerful verse that will guide you in a lot of ways. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule. Everybody say rule. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. In this verse, the word rule means what it implies here. Let the peace of God make a ruling. It's the only place this is found in the New Testament in the Greek. And the word is umpire or daysman. Let the peace of God be the umpire in your life. So if God is green lighting this decision. If God is showing favor on this decision. One very powerful component 
of making a wise decision is an inner peace that comes from the Holy Ghost when God says, safe, you're doing the right thing. Now, in big decisions, there can be all kinds of circumstances and turmoil. Just be scared of that decision. But when there is a holy unrest, when there is a holy no, kind of like God is saying, out. He's not saying safe. He's the umpire and the Holy Ghost in you is giving you turmoil, lack of peace. Paul said in Colossians to let the peace of God be the umpire of your life. And when God gives you peace, that is one very powerful indicator that you're doing the right thing. So let the peace of God preside in your hearts to be the director, the arbitrator, to preserve the order. Amen? Because the peace of God that passes understanding will rule in your heart and it will keep your heart in mind. Amen. You see, you're, we're all subject to like passions, the Bible said, like Elijah. We can be affected by a lot, by a lot of things. But in the middle of all of that, when there is a deep, settled peace, you can have an assurance that you're walking in the will of God and making a wise decision. After we came to Atlanta West, the first six months was extremely challenging. And you may not know this, but that is an understatement. First year was pretty tough. There are a lot of depressed people around here. There are a lot of distrusting people around here. I was just turned 40 years old and trusted by our entire United Pentecostal Church Fellowship. Felt like I had people here that didn't trust that I was a Christian, much less their pastor. It just takes time, and I understood it. I remember driving down I-21 day about where Six Flags is. I was going east. I literally fell over the steering wheel, was praying and crying. I said, God, I just don't know if this church is going to make it. Well, God knew this church was going to make it. But I thank the Lord that before we got into the battle, we had this peace that said, this is the right thing. And I'm not saying this in a bragging way. I'm saying this in a thankful way. That never one time, did we ever consider leaving? Never one time did we ever question whether we were in the will of God. When you're making a decision that is a life decision. When we had a horrible rental house that smelled, pardon me for saying this, that smelled like cat urine. When your oldest son hates that you've moved and he's angry. When your wife's depressed and rains every other day. When you're praying and preaching your guts out and you don't feel like you're even budging anything you better know that you're in the will of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Would you please stand? This song is really my life verse. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him 
and he shall direct thy paths. 